and I asked her to be an advisor. And she said, Madeline, I don't know how to tell you this, but I'm a Republican. And I said, gosh, Condi, how did that happen? We have the same father. And I am very worried about what America's role is now because the virus knows no borders. Climate change knows no borders. So then the next call actually was from Amy Poehler saying, would I be on Parks and Recreation? She had a picture of me in her office and apparently there'd been some episode earlier where uh, some guy comes in to ask her for a date and says, is this your grandmother? And she said, no. And anybody who doesn't know who Madeleine Albright is, I'm not going out with. When you gave that speech, my mother, who was 90 at the time, stood up and yelled, go girl. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Straight Talk, a podcast about big ideas from some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Balsam, the chairman of the Balsam Institute, and today I'm speaking with former U.S. Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. In 1997, Madeleine was named the first female Secretary of State and became at that time the highest ranking woman in the history of the U.S. government. From 1993 to 1997, she served as a U.S. permanent representative to the U.N. In 2012, she was chosen by President Obama to receive the nation's highest civilian honor, the Presidential Medal of Freedom, in recognition of her contribution to international peace and democracy. Madeline, welcome to the podcast. Hank, I'm delighted to be with you and look forward to our conversation. I'm sure you know this, you're one of my very favorite people. I've got great admiration for you. You know, one of the things that uh, you and I have in common that uh, our listeners might not be aware of is Wellesley College. You're a very distinguished alumni of Wellesley. And uh, even though I went to Dartmouth College, I attend more Wellesley reunions than my own alma mater's reunion. And that's because my wife Wendy, my mom, my grandmother, and my sister all went to Wellesley. And one of my enduring memories of you is a number of years ago when Wendy and I spent a week at the Albright Institute at Wellesley. You were emphasizing the great value of having an international mindset and a sense of civic duty. Those traits must have been instilled in you at a very early age. Your father, Joseph Corbell, is that how you pronounce that? Corbell. Corbell, okay. Yep. So Joseph Corbell was a very distinguished diplomat and scholar. And, uh, you know, he taught you and Condoleezza Rice, two former secretaries of state. Imagine that. So what was it like having your dad as a teacher and what did you learn from him? Well, first of all, I thank you very much for the Wellesley connection. Uh, and by the way, my daughter went to Dartmouth, so we have that also. But I do think that what you and Wendy were able to do in order to really be a part of this Albright Institute that's now celebrating its 10th anniversary is very important. And I'm very grateful to both of you. And I'm very grateful for our friendship, which has 
uh, really evolved over the years. It's one of the really uh, remarkable and fun uh, friendships that I have. So thanks to both of you. So the question that you asked, um, I grew up, my father was a Czechoslovak diplomat um, and he was with the government in exile in London. And then after that, he became, uh, the, when uh, the war was over, he became Czechoslovakia's ambassador to Yugoslavia. So the little girl in the national costume that gives flowers at the airport is what I did for a living. So diplomacy and history were very much a part of my life. And my father really was the most amazing teacher. We did come to the United States. My father didn't want to work for the communists. He came to the United States and he defected and he asked for political asylum and he became a professor at the University of Denver. And he said, there is nothing better than to be a professor in a free country. And he was a born teacher. He had stories about diplomatic history and he had ways of drawing all kinds of facts together. And there wasn't a time that an occasion wasn't used to teach um, about foreign policy. That's all we ever talked about, frankly. Uh, other people might have discussions about sports or something else, never. We always talked about foreign policy and history. So that's what I grew up with. Um, and it made a huge difference for me. And when I teach now, I think I kind of pick up some of the lessons that my father um, even uh, not directly, but indirectly implanted in me in terms of respect for one's students, uh, thinking about the next generation. So great. I do have to tell the Condi story, if you don't mind. Um, what happened when my father died in 1977, he was a big deal in Denver by then. Um, and so there were lots of flowers and tributes at the funeral and among them, was just this ceramic pot with some um, leaves in it. So I go to my mother and I say, where did that come from? And she said, it's from your father's favorite student, Condoleezza Rice. She was a music major, hence the piano. She took a international relations course from my father. He persuaded her to become an international relations major. She got her um, master's at Notre Dame and then she came back and she was working on her PhD. And so this African-American music major from Alabama was writing her dissertation on the Czechoslovak uh, military. And so in 1987, when I was doing some work for Michael Dukakis, my job was to find foreign policy advisors for him. I thought, great, I'll call Condi, a woman teaches Soviet uh, studies uh, on the West Coast, and I asked her to be an advisor. And she said, Madeline, I don't know how to tell you this, but I'm a Republican. <laughs> and I said, gosh, Condi, how did that happen? We had the same father. Uh, so anyway, so we are very good friends. And this uh, Czechoslovak refugee basically did train two women secretaries of state. So speaking about this Czechoslovakian refugee, did you ever dream back then when you were talking about foreign policy with your father that someday you would shatter the class ceiling and become the first woman to be U.S. Secretary of State. Did that idea ever occur to you then? Never, I have to say, never occurred to me. Uh, I did know I wanted, I actually wanted to be a journalist um, and uh, it never occurred to me that I would have an opportunity to work in the U.S. government at all, but then to be able to have worked for a Senator, Senator Muskie, and then to work on the national security staff 
uh, in the Carter administration for Zbigniew Brzezinski, who had been my professor. Um, and then to have an opportunity to uh, work at the United Nations, which I knew a lot about uh, as ambassador and a cabinet member then. And it never occurred to me that I could be secretary of state. And especially uh, one of the things I think you may remember is Warren Christopher, who had been first term secretary, had said he didn't want to serve in a second term. So all of a sudden, there was this period of great mentioning. And so my name came up because I was a cabinet member and I'd been doing quite a lot of TV explaining the UN. And somebody said, well, a woman can't be secretary of state because Arab leaders will not deal with a woman. And so the Arab ambassadors at the UN got together and they said, well, we haven't had any problems dealing with Ambassador Albright. We wouldn't have any problems dealing with Secretary Albright. So that was that. But then somebody at the White House, and I never want to know who, said, yes, Madeline's on the list, but she's second tier. So I never, never expected it. <laughs> I tell you, that story says a lot about, about you and a lot about the United States of America. So Madeline, you've just finished your seventh book, Hell and Other Destinations. Now, as someone who's struggled to write several books myself and found that to be excruciatingly difficult, how do you do it? Now, tell us a little bit about, uh, about uh, your, your love for writing, what the writing process is like, and uh, tell us a bit about your, your latest book. I obviously had written my dissertation and other books, but uh, I have had a lot of help in writing books now. Uh, and I've worked with Bill Woodward, who worked with me when I was in the government. And so uh, I don't do this by myself, so I can't take complete credit. But I do think that we all need to write books. You have, Hank. And, and I do think that there's an obligation to history for people that have had the kinds of jobs that we've had to explain what we did, because uh, everybody sees their positions slightly differently. But I do think that memoirs are very important. So, but this particular book, <clears throat> I decided to write. I decided to write this book because I wanted to explain what I'm doing now. Um, and I'm sometimes asked, how do you want to be remembered? And I said, I don't want to be remembered. I'm still here. Um, and one of the things that I've always said is that I've tried to make whatever I'm doing next more interesting than what I did before. Not easy if you've been Secretary of State. And so this book is about the various things that I've done uh, since I left office. And a lot of it is a rationalization of how the various things I've done fit together. Um, so um, I um, do, what happened as I was leaving, people would say, well, do you want to write books? And I said, yes. And then do you want to teach again? And I said, yes. And I said, do you want to start a business? And I said, well, that'll be interesting. And do you want to give speeches? And I said, yes. And do you want to be chairman of the board of the National Democratic Institute? And I said, yes. And they said, well, choose. And I said, I choose all of them. And that's kind of what I've done. And I explain how one thing leads to another. Uh, and I learn from one thing and it informs me on something else. Now the title, Hell and Other Destinations, comes the most famous thing I ever said was there's a special place in hell for women yeah. who don't help each other. It was so yeah. famous. I, I remember when you, when you gave that speech, I, I was when you made those comments at Wellesley College, I was there. And 
my, my mother, who was 90 at the time, stood up and yelled, go girl. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that one. Well, and, and it was great because I think other women know that and that we are very hard on each other. Uh, and we're very judgmental about each other. And we also project our own sense of inadequacy on other women. So that's what that statement is about. Um, and I did write the book before um, the current uh, crises with uh, COVID. Um, but... Uh, that I didn't recognize the fact that the title would be so germane now. So, so Madeline, one thing you and I have in common in the writing process is that, uh, that I also got a good deal of help when I wrote the books that I've written. And to me, it was a difficult experience. I remember when I said to Wendy, I thought I was going to write a second book. She said, I think I'll start to date again. But, <laughs> but, you know, the other thing I'll say is when it's all done and when you hold it in your hand, there's a great feeling of accomplishment. And again, uh, the reason I've written also is, is to leave a record, a historical record uh, for future generations. Now, let's, let's talk about some less pleasant topics. The pandemic has really highlighted how small, interconnected, and dangerous the world has become. It has shown a very harsh light on some of the most glaring international failures and uh, vulnerabilities. How do you see America's role in the world today? Well, let me say that um, I have, I was recently asked to describe myself in six words. And I said, worried optimist, problem solver, grateful American. And I know you liked uh, the fact that you represented the United States in a number of very essential meetings as Secretary of Treasury. And I loved representing the United States. And I really did consider it a great honor. Uh, President Clinton was the first one who said that we were the indispensable nation. I just said it so often. It became identified with me, but there's nothing about the word indispensable that says alone. It means that we need to be engaged with partners. And so I am very worried about what is going on now because I have the last actual meeting that I, international one that I went to was the Munich Security Conference and we were dismissed. Uh, Pompeo um, and Esper came and they gave a talk and it bore no relationship to what the other people were talking about. Um, there really is a question about what our role is. Are we partners? Uh, do we not understand how much of America's security depends on our relationship with other countries? Um, and I think you saw that, Hank, in terms of the treasury job and um, the uh, uh, various financial crises and how you dealt with them. And, and so I do think that it's very small-minded for us to think that we don't have to be involved. And I am very worried about what America's role is now because the virus knows no borders. Climate change knows no borders. Uh, nuclear proliferation, as it turns out, knows no borders. And, and I have often said this, that people and institutions in their 70s need a little refurbishing. So there's an awful lot that needs to be done now, but I am, I feel that the world is better off when the U.S. is a partner, and we are better off when we are partners. And so I hope we get a chance to refurbish America's reputation. 
For sure. So Madeline, uh, your, your time at State was all about strengthening our global alliances, working with our allies. Are alliances still working today? And what, what do we need to do to continue to strengthen them and update them? Well, I, I believe that alliances are very important because we can't do everything by ourselves. Whether we like it or not, um, and I happen to think it's essential, is we are interconnected. We have NATO is the major alliance, and it's a military alliance, but it's also an alliance of democracies. Uh, and I think that that part has to be stressed. And we need to figure out how NATO responds to the newest threat, which is cyber. Uh, that is a new threat and how it works. So uh, NATO needs to, in fact, also upgrade itself in a number of ways. Uh, when I was at Wellesley, by the way, uh, I had to learn a whole bunch of alphabet soup about different alliances. And when I remember reading, we talked about CETO, the Southeast Asian Treaty Organization, uh, and that doesn't exist. Uh, and there are questions about what kind of alliances we have um, in Asia, uh, in terms of how we work with Japan and South Korea, what about ASEAN? And so there are a lot of alliances, we need them, and they need to have um, impetus from the United States and the other countries. But again, what is important, U.S. needs to be engaged in the alliances, and it doesn't have to be the policeman of the world and tell everybody what to do all the time. Yeah, we need to continue to update them. and. Uh invest in them and work it uh, to, to, to make them stronger. So you talked about alliances with other democracies. So now let's switch to an area where you and I have, uh, have a common interest in U.S.-China relations. We've shared viewpoints on this for, for, for a good number of years right now. So th this is a relationship that's in trouble. You know, it's a relation that's in trouble. That it's on a very dangerous downward spiral. What do we need to do? Or is, is it possible to, to put this relationship on a more sustainable, stable footing and that works for our national interest, that works for the American people? Is that possible today? And what, what do we need to do to, uh, to, to, to make this, uh, make this uh, evolving relationship work? I think what's so interesting, Hank, is how it has evolved. Um, and when I was at the UN, um, I could barely get the Chinese ambassador to participate in uh, discussions. Um, and I do think that one of the things we tried to do um, in the Clinton administration was to develop more relationships with Chinese. And what was interesting during Obama was when there was a rebalancing to Asia. Um, and the Europeans got very nervous. They said we'd abandoned them. And I said, guess what? The US is not monogamous. We're an Atlantic and a Pacific power. Um, and it was very important to develop a functional relationship with the Chinese. And you have played a major part in this. I mean, you are somebody, I've been with you uh, with the Chinese, and you are somebody that is so highly respected by them because of your knowledge of the country and your interests. And so, I am very nervous about what is going on now, where um, we are developing almost a Cold War relationship with them. Um, and I do think that what is the part of statecraft is that you have to figure out where are the areas that we can cooperate 
and where are the places that we have to compete. Um, and I do think this requires diplomacy. It requires the private sector to also be involved. But I'm very, very nervous about some accident, for instance, in the South China Sea where they have aircraft carriers. We are trying to make sure that we have navigational rights. Um, and the relationship is at an all-time low. Uh, and what has just happened in Hong Kong has made it um, obviously more dangerous because one of the things, and you know this also, is when you go to a country in order to have a discourse, um, you have to tell it like it is. Um, and I used to say, I have come a long way, so I must be frank. But I think I always raise the issue of human rights. And so we need to have a relationship where we can point out what's wrong and then try to figure out uh, where we can cooperate. But I'm very nervous about what is going on now. I bet you yeah. feel that way also. Yeah, I, I agree with you. We, we, we need to be strong. They understand strength. We, we need to be strong economically, militarily, diplomatically. There's no doubt about it. Uh, there's a lot of things they're doing that we don't like. I think it's very important when we, uh, and, and we're going to need a new framework for, for U.S.-China relations. This has evolved. You know, this is a different China than existed five years ago. It's a different United States. It's, it, it's a different world. So we're going to need a, 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 a framework where we can, uh, you know, deal with the differences while we uh, work together where there's shared interests. And if we don't, the world's going to be a very dangerous place. And so I'd like to come back to some comments you made when we talked about the U.S.'s role in the world. Because when you and I have talked a bit about the pandemic, I think we, we, we both agree that the world's not going to be the same after this. There are going to be changes. And, you know, as we said earlier, uh, this has exposed uh, problems that have existed for some time, that, that the institutions we have, the global governance institutions, some of the alliances, the treaties, the protocols, they, they, they have to be made to work in today's world. And so how do you, 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 you talked a bit about the, the threats out there. You know, you said pandemics don't know boundaries, you know, the nuclear proliferation, climate change, cyber thre threats. What do you think needs to be done? I mean, it, it, it's clear that uh, uh, the, the U.S. has to play a leadership role, but what do you think needs to be done to, uh, to, to fix the, this, uh, uh, the, this global problem? It's, you know it's going to change after the pandemic. Well, what sorts of things need to be done? Well, I think some of the things, for instance, I've often talked about two megatrends and their downside, and they have a lot to do with what's uh, going on and went on even before the virus, which is globalization, uh, which we've all benefited from in so many ways. But it does have a downside because it's faceless, uh, and people want to know what their identities are. Uh, and I think that's great. We all want to know that. But if my identity hates your identity, then it develops into nationalism, and hyper-nationalism is a problem. And that is one of the issues between the United States and China. Xi Jinping is playing the nationalist card in a very big way in order to maintain 
um, the popularity that he believes that the Communist Party needs to have and that he needs to have. The other um, mega trend has been technology, which has made an incredible difference. And Hank, I've been in discussions with you when we've been in Aspen about, for instance, the role that technology's had um, for the women, the Kenyan woman farmer who no longer has to walk tons of miles to pay her bills. She's got a mobile phone that she can do it with. And she can then be a part of society and um, get an education and start a business or run for office. That's great. But it also has disaggregated voices and people don't know where the information's coming from. And uh, there's, there are uh, various ways that hacking takes place and uh, we don't know how it really all works. And so there are very serious issues that need to be dealt with. And I hate to always use this cliche now, but I do think that the crisis now really does offer an opportunity to look at things differently. Um, and to understand that we're not going back to status quo ante, that we have to figure out how the relationships work, what the role of the US is, how technology plays a part, what do we do about um, the cyber, what do we do about all the various things. And I'm hoping that, uh, and I do, you know, there's rarely ever a book or speech given that doesn't quote Robert Frost. So one of the quotes I like is something like, the older I get, the younger are my teachers. Um, and I do think that the next generation is very technologically savvy. They are going through a hard time now, and I think that we need to work with them on how to deal with these issues. So, agreed. So let's leave the discussion of global issues on that ho hopeful note, because I also believe that the, uh, that the pandemic has highlighted uh, the international vulnerabilities in a way at which I think it gives us an opportunity to uh, to work together to solve them because everyone knew a pa the pandemic was a real possibility uh, it's almost a certainty and yet we were unprepared for this globally and so all the other things that you talked about are also real likelihoods unless we work to solve them and so there's a real opportunity there so I'd like to now turn to the United States. And, you know, you're a, a real people person. And so you, you know, understood and really made it work how you needed to work across government, across the aisle when you're working with Congress, with, with your colleagues in, 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 in the cabinet. Talk a little bit about what it's going to take to make uh, the U.S. government do a better job of bringing people together, what it takes to be a successful uh, cabinet secretary in, in your view? Well, I think that um, what is important are obviously how the branches of the government are organized and how they work together. I think that many people actually don't recognize the fact that the first article of the Constitution is about the power of Congress. Um, and then the second article is about the executive branch. And um, as I teach about that, and I do, is um, it's often called an invitation to struggle because some of the duties are uh, in both places. Um, and I do think, I worked on the Hill for a while uh, and then worked in the executive branch. And I think the executive legislative relations are the most interesting, frankly. Um, and 
Um, I teach a course, I say foreign policy is just trying to get some country to do what you want. That's all it is. So what are the tools? And there are not a lot of tools and the all, all the tools actually need to be activated by Congress. And so you spent an awful lot of time going up to the Hill when you were secretary and dealing with uh, people of the opposite party, Nancy Pelosi, as I remember. Um, and I think that it is very important to understand the power of Congress, to be respectful of it, but it requires providing information and listening to what they have to say. Obviously, the judicial branch also plays a very large role. And then what I think we're all learning is what the power of the governors is these days and local um, councils, et cetera, mayors, because in order to have a foreign policy in a democracy, the people need to understand what you're doing. And so I had this whole thing, I used to travel around the US, travels with Maddie, uh, and um, would really uh, ask the uh, people to give me a globe. And American maps in um, classrooms often just have the Western hemisphere with two flaps um, on either side. And I'd say, bring me a globe. And then I'd turn the globe around and I'd say, most of the people live on the other side of the globe. And I think that's what needs to be understood. So it's a, an all-purpose discussion uh, between and among the branches and with the people. I tell you, that is very well said. You know, I left government with a view that when you're looking at domestic policy, if change is going to be lasting, be sustainable, it's got to be done on a bipartisan basis. And, you know, so I had very little use for ideologues on either side because you needed to find common ground. That's, that's the way a two-party system needs to work. And it was helpful to me to have come from investment banking where you needed to listen and work with various clients. And so, uh, you know, President Bush sent me up to the Hill and wanted me to, to, to work both sides of the aisle. And, uh, and, and I said to, to, you know, I got a hostile reception when I first came down because he was very unpopular, if you may remember back, you know, it, it, the, the two years before the uh, 2008 election. He was very unpopular with Republicans and Democrats. But uh, I'd say, look, at, I'm the Secretary of Treasury. You're my client. I, I need to listen to you. I want to work with you. And I remember you doing that uh, exceptionally, exceptionally well. Now, I want to talk about something else that's pretty unique to the U.S., is how we do transitions between administrations. You know, I, I remember right in the middle of the financial crisis, after we stabilized the markets, that nine weeks, maybe it was 10 weeks from the election until President Obama was sworn in. Those were extraordinarily difficult for me, but it all worked in the end. It all worked really well, and there was a, there was a seamless transition. But it's very hard to explain to outsiders how this all, how this all happens. So tell me, you've had some experience with that. I'd be very interested to get your comments. Well, it's interesting because I've been transitioned into, and I've done the transitioning. The latter is more fun. But the transition um, <laughs> from uh, President Carter to President Reagan 
Um, it was really very interesting. They were planning to lower the profile of the National Security Advisor. And so as I was in Brzezinski's office, when Alan came in, who was about to be named the National Security Advisor, and the office was being moved from the first floor of the West Wing down into the basement where the Situation Room is. So I took him down there, and I go in, and it was just this rabbit warren, and he said, well, this is definitely lowering the profile of the National Security Advisor. But generally, it was not pleasant. They were going to eliminate a lot of the things that the Carter administration had done. But I was the first, I did the national security transition for the Clinton administration. And I was the first Clinton person to come to the White House. And I went back to exactly where I had sat before. Um, and I think the transition is one of the most interesting parts because some people think it's too long. It goes from November to January. It actually used to go to March. Um, and some think it's too short because what happens is it's the process whereby the crown jewels are turned over. Um, and what you do is you go in and you talk to all the people that are there to find out what they're doing, what they're in the middle of. <clears throat> are there, because a lot of the people are non-political, do they want to stay? Um, are there things that need to be changed? Uh, and, um, and it can be very cooperative and interesting. What um, I always feel nervous about, because it feels like malice of forethought, but one of the things that never, I didn't know, I thought I'd get a job in the Clinton administration, but I thought it would be an assistant secretary or I didn't quite know what. But we thought um, that it might be useful because there were so many multilateral issues is to make whoever was gonna be uh, ambassador to the United Nations a permanent member of the principals committee. Uh, because Jean Kirkpatrick, for instance, would be invited to come in when there was something to do with the UN, but not for the other things. And that was accepted, that it would be a cabinet job and a member of the principals. So when I got the job, people thought, aha, she planned that. Um, but I do think it's a fascinating time, but it is not much fun to be transitioned into, but it is the thing that I think makes all the difference. And I do believe in that for instance, the Obama administration did leave some plan on how to deal with pandemics. Um, and given some of the attitude, I think this was not a particularly good transition that took place. Um, and then you lack a lot of the knowledge about how things were done uh, and how the system works. Yeah, I tell you, transitions are critically, critically important and uh, they've always worked really well in the United States uh, for, for the most part. So, uh, Madeline, let me end on a lighter note. Is you're continuing to extend what you do in act two of your career, is there going to be a role for you in Hollywood? You know, you made a cameo appearance in the NBCC uh, program Parks and Recreation a number of years ago. Tell us about that and tell us what that's going to mean for your future. Well, uh, let me tell you how this all began. I do watch TV. Um, this was, I was out of office and I actually got a call from Gilmore Girls, which is a show that I used to watch because it's a mother-daughter thing. And they said, would you mind if somebody played you? And I said, yes, I mind. I want to play myself. So I did that. My kids made fun of me and said, mom, you weren't acting. That's how you are. So then the next call actually was from Amy Poehler saying, would I be on Parks and Recreation? 
she had a picture of me in her office. And apparently there had been some episode earlier where uh, some guy comes in to ask her for a date and says, is this your grandmother? And she said, uh, no, it's Madeline. And anybody who doesn't know who Madeline Albright is, I'm not going out with. So then they asked me to be on Parks and Rec. We did that and that was fun. And then what happens is that Taya Leone, they're starting a new show called Madam Secretary. And she calls me up and wants to have lunch and talk about what it's like to be Secretary of State. So we're having this serious conversation and I thought, what am I doing? Um, and then the writers got interested in what I was saying. And I rationalized that these shows are important because they talk about real events. I also used to watch something called Army Wives or that always had some kind of a hidden message. So then they asked me to be on the show once and I did that. And then you know about the White House Correspondents' Dinner and they asked me to go with them. And so I was with Taya Leone and every time somebody said, Madam Secretary, she would turn around. So then what happened most recently they wanted to um, have a show where uh, Colin Powell and Hillary Clinton and I were together. And this, it was totally scripted and something had happened at the White House and she calls us in. And I got an unscripted line in, which is as we sat down, I said, Madam Secretary, it's wonderful when the current Secretary of State calls her predecessors in to consult. We used to do that all the time. And they left that in. <laughs> so well, I've had fun. Funny. That was fun. I have not had the same experience, but but when, when uh, HBO put out the uh, the, the movie uh, Too Big to Fail, they they wrote a script and they asked uh, William Hurt to play Hank Paulson, and so they asked me if I would spend some time with William Hurt. So of course I agreed to do that. And I spent some time with him. And th th then when the movie came out, uh, I, I looked at it and I said, my gosh, you know, he's not at all like me. He's, he's laid back and he's low key and so on. And, and, and my kids said, Dad, you should be grateful. He's much more likable than you are. <laughs> and so <laughs> so that, was, that was the closest I ever got, to, other, other than a few documentaries the closest I ever got to a movie. So, Madeline, this has been great, great fun uh, uh, talking to you. Uh, I know you're going to go on and do, continue to do very exciting things in Act Two, and you're going to make a real difference, and I look forward to continuing to uh, work with you. So, thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you, and I love working with you. Uh, and I said, it took me a long time to find my voice, and I'm sure not going to be quiet now. So. Thank you so much, Hank, for giving me a chance to talk with you.